cheap as stupid things. They go where they're pushed. They don't know what gives, except good peas. Their masters know what gives, they think, but they don't agree. The pessimists say wool's on the way out, wool's dead, long live synthetics. But reality shows that the obituary is premised. gotta send you guys this picture on instagram so this happened to me today and this is just the dilemma that i had to deal with this is when i went to like go and check on the goats this evening can of buzz is that what's going on here yeah it's just in this really uh small like slot that i have to like reach down into so there's a bee hanging out in this little slot but it looks like it's next to like a joint yeah so it's, it's can of buzz going with it it's gotten. There's money down there too. <laughs> Little penny. It's a guardian. That bee. That bee is selling weed. <laughs> oh, ten ten thousand percent. Yeah. So for it's like the shit's all natural. For our listeners, there's like a. Li- it's basically like a little cup that like a little joint is sitting down in, and then there's a big ass like wasp, hop, like sitting on the joint. Getting high as fuck. So this is the uh, problems I have to deal with. Hashtag farmer problems. Hashtag farmer problems. Speaking of so, farmer problems, what are we talking about today, Andy? Farmer, pr- farmer problems. Well, first off, welcome back. I am your host, Andy, along with my lovely and excited co-hosts, Elliot and Matt. I heard there was going to be sheep. And it's about time I am starving. So today we're going to be continuing our new mini-series. And this one today is special. You know why, Matt? I do not. It's sponsored by the Ginger Dead Man. Oh, God. Now in theaters. I thought we'd left this behind us. No, we did not. No, like like anything, when they discover something that's been around forever, he just hangs on to it until everybody hates it again. Good. That's the goal. Everyone needs to hate it. It's not. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful. Gary Busey. Terrible movie. You just found Watch out it. who that was. See, he's doing I, it I again. Just, I knew who he was. I just forgot his name for a moment. Yeah, Andy started describing Gary Busey to us as kind of jacked, sometimes <laughs> Russian. Said he was a ripped Russian guy. I, That's what he I, said. I, yeah, <laughs> um, kind of jacked Russian guy is not how I would start describing. This is what we have to deal with behind the scenes. I mean, he's a very distinctive man. Yeah. So speaking of jacked Russian guys, let's talk about sheep. Yep. So today is actually really exciting because I do love talking about sheep and I get to talk about something else I really like that we don't spend enough time on this podcast doing. Ready for my two favorite things, Elliot? Lamb and sheep. I mean, that's that that's one, but all right. How is that one? Because it's like redundant. Lambs are sheep. You mean lambs grow up to be sheep? But they are sheep. Sheep include lamb. So is it sheep's? Sheeps. Shops. Okay, so so it, <laughs> sheps. It's sheep and history. So this series is going to be focused on some uh, historical. Nerd. We'll call them anomalies uh, around major agricultural formations and changes, uh, with the hope to either a learn about why it was an astounding failure, which is today's episode, and b to learn you know just some funny wild ass shit and feel better about ourselves for not getting rich on a terrible idea. 
And in some cases, it's going to be both of those things. Sounds pretty fun. Yeah, which category do I fall into? Both. You're going to be rich but terrible at it. Well, either way, that's impressive. So today we're talking about uh, a 35-year period in New England history, what's called Sheep Fever, which took place from 1810 to 1845. Yeah, it sounds like a kind of plague. Yeah, it was not. The first thing to understand that it was the first time in the New World where there was a, a market farming opportunity in the North, not just subsistence. This is outside the pine deforestation, which was less of a market opportunity and more of a the king will have us killed if we don't do it kind of thing. That's what we call the good old days, you know? Yeah, some do. Some, Matt, <laughs> Mr. Blonde Hair, Blue Eyes. So we're here to talk. It's brown and they're green. We've been over No, this. they're not. Stop lying to our audience. Elliot, back me up on this one. What? Blonde hair and blue eyes? No. You, yeah. Look you, at this, look you at this. all look the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're going to talk specifically about the merino wool crate. We're going to talk specifically about the merino wool craze. And as is a habit of mine, I want to start a little bit further back. Yeah, he's going to start with a fucking squirrel and an acorn. Never. But, like, you have. I mean, once. Like, you do. Yeah, like five times. Okay, not, not the point here. How far back you going, fucker? We're, we're not going back that far. To fully understand what happened, we need to look at when the colonists showed up and started working their way into cutting down the forests in New England throughout the 17th century. Oh, God, I don't want to say it was all good things. <laughs> Sarcastically, Matt. All right. All good things, of course. Of course. Of course. It was believed that there was an infinite amount of forest in the New World. You couldn't cut it down fast enough, and much of the lands were quickly cleared, with many of the largest pines being claimed by King George, even through law, for naval ship masts. Yeah, so did they really think it was infinite, and they just cut down all those tall, tall trees and made them into boats and sail them back for King George? Or was it a case of, like, not my problem when these run out? kind of situation colonists the og boomers yeah uh they were really in a lot of ways now for most folks pines might seem kind of like an ordinary tree or even maybe like a generally useless tree from like an agroecological perspective in the sense it doesn't provide like much food for livestock or humans and i hate pines well hate is is kind of a strong word you heard it here first everybody andy hates trees gotcha Y'all trying to get me tree canceled. I can't believe it. He said he hates a specific kind of tree. We got it. It's recorded. I think we have to quit now. Jesus Christ. We gotcha. Anyways, so despite its shortfalls as a food producing tree, pine is unique for two reasons. It grows straight with a main trunk and it's incredibly strong, especially for its light weight. It also grows incredibly fast. Don't say that's more than two reasons. This is the same reason we use pine for things like 2x4s in construction, and why homes at the time were mostly built with pine, and continue today. Needless to say, people didn't care about the king's proclamation, to an extent, and continued to cut the trees down at a really incredible pace, quickly clearing out most of New England. So the land was cleared both to make way for homesteads and small farms, as well as to ship foods back to Boston and New York, as well as to feed the British Navy's fleet. Have you guys seen those, like, pictures of 2x4s from the 50s versus today? And, like, the growth rings? It's insane. 
Yeah, the growth rings today are significantly, significantly wider. And uh, that's that's a little frightening. It it means that the wood today is growing much faster to get to the same size. And uh, I'd really be curious to see how they compare for strength. But I'd imagine, given you know how easily pine warps today, that it hasn't been great. Yeah, perfect for building houses. But um, isn't pine anti like fungal and antimicrobial too? It is, and that makes it not a great wood for most like. Like people that grow mushrooms, it's not like your ideal ideal wood to use for like for like mulching. Maybe for growing chaga. Oh, for mulching, you mean? Um, no, I was asking for 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 mulch. Like, what were you talking about with mushrooms? Like, you try to grow mushrooms in the tree stump? No, like inoculating logs or things like that. Yeah, wouldn't work with pine. No, wouldn't work. I well, mean, you could. There's there's a couple. Yeah, but. you do chaga. I think. Oh, not chaga. Chaga is on birch. Yeah, what's the... um? There is mind. one. I don't remember what it is, to be honest. Not Lion's Mane. As the country expanded west, the farms continued to also move primarily west, where the land was less rocky and what little topsoil had existed hadn't yet been brutalized by tillage. The forest began to come back uh, as these homesteads moved down further west, and um, there were a few homesteads that continued to stay scattered in between. Now, that's basically the background on what had happened, ecologically speaking, in New England prior to the Merino sheep. Okay, so they had sheep before, but they weren't Merino sheep. Yes. With all that said, we, we should change gears a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about Boston and the Boston Brahmins, because one in particular was especially important for the story, William Jarvis. So the Brahmins are uh, an interesting story because essentially their history is an odd mix. It also speaks to some of the accelerants for the Revolutionary War. They came to the New World with the idea to establish a new English gentry, often coming from like the wealthier families in England, hoping to increase their status by being the basically the new old gentry for the New World. So they wanted to get in on the bottom floor of the New World and just sort of spread out like parasites. Start at the bottom, now we're here. It's just it's just a pyramid scheme, this whole thing. It's not a pyramid, it's a triangle. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So if you've never heard of the Boston Brahmins, lucky you. These are the same folks that brought you the Harvards of the New World and were often descendants of some of the earliest settlers in the colonies. And part of that came with the ruthless prudence of people driven primarily by wealth. These folks are also, despite being literally only a couple hundred people, total, many of the major players in the newly formed United States of America's government, the Adams family, the Coolidge family, the Beacon family, the Cabots, the Chafees, the Elliots, not you, the Fuck. Forbes, the, the Emersons, the Abbots, the Delanos, and yeah, uh, a lot of those last names were people who were president, so you get it. Yeah, Jesus Christ, Lincoln Chafee is old money, and that actually makes sense, actually, I think. I mean, Lincoln Chafee does belong in the 18th century. Who is Lincoln Chafee? Wait, is he that like weird old guy that ran the 2020 election? Yeah, he's our hometown hero. And by hometown, I mean the town of the town of Rhode, Rhode Island, because it's a fucking small state that sucks. And by hero, I mean he's an absolute fucking idiot. Man, I want to bring the Chafe Master back. That's a good nickname. Good nickname for him. So he's he chafes. Am, am, am I right? Who's the dude who tried to go after Hillary Clinton, and she gave him just like fully, just like no. 
It's very, and then, it, it, I know that, that and, plays well in this room, but I got to be honest, Governor Chafee, for the record, on the campaign trail, you've said a different thing. You said this is a huge issue standing here in front of Secretary Clinton. Are you willing to say that to her face? Absolutely. Uh, we have to repair American credibility after we told the world that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which he didn't. So there's an issue of American credibility out there. So anytime someone's running to be our leader and a world leader, which the American president is, credibility is an issue out there with the world. And we have repair work to be done. I think we need someone that has the best in ethical standards as our next president. That's how I feel. Secretary Clinton, do you want to respond? No. Governor, Governor. <laughs> yeah, that was her one Chad move was taking down Lincoln Chafee. One. She got one and she wasted on fucking Lincoln Chafee. Uh, she's got two now because she's not wasteful. We talked about it last episode. Yeah, well, that was like six months ago, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the Brahmins is an interesting story. There's six months between these fucking episodes? Yeah, man. Good lord. Yeah. So the Brahmins is actually based on this this caste system in India um, where the Brahmins were considered the upper class. And um, it was actually only in, uh, in the 19th century that the New England upper class was given this term. It wasn't when they, they showed up. Okay, so this is still Andy's preamble, I think, for the beginning of the episode. Really not that far, not that long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of frightening to think that like a formalized caste system that actually got a name based on a caste system was like, you know, a couple generations back. It's really easy to forget how powerful many of these families were up to even like not very long ago. So you could say we went from like basically a feudal surf economy to a capitalist economy primarily because of industrialization. Almost like it's a natural succession of feudalism. Almost. More blood. So anyways, let's talk about a specific member of the Brahmins, William Jarvis, our boy. Like many folks of new old money, Jarvis attended the best schools and went into business and ended up losing a ton of money through his partners. But you know, like money does, he was able to buy a ship and move to Europe, where he dealt widely across the continent in commodities and built a successful trading house, William Jarvis and Company. You know, getting a small loan from your parents. Was it Romney? I thought that was Trump. That was Romney. A small loan of a million dollars? Yeah. Really? Trump got two million from his dad, I think. I think Trump, like, just got that was, everything. That was back in the 80s. Yeah. All right. So, as one does. So, is this, like, a white guy thing? Do you guys have, like, a million dollars coming to you? I don't, but, you know, it is a white person thing. Selling services and ads on a niche podcast. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. 
Well, that was fun. I bought a bunch of, well, whatever that was. But to get back to our good friend Jarvis, while he was using his family name overseas, he began to build a network across the coast of Europe, primarily like England, Spain, and Portugal, and saw this merino wool selling for like insane prices. The wool, which could only be purchased from Spain, was getting around $2 a pound, uh, which might not sound like a lot, but in today's dollars, the equivalent would be around like $50 a pound versus like 27 cents a pound for the sheep in my backyard. So like the margin for merino wool versus any other wool was insane. And you could see that there was like some serious money being made. Okay, so how much wool does one sheep produce? About like 10 to 15 pounds. So that's like $600 a sheep in today's dollars. A herd of 100 sheep would bring like a full-time income in today's dollars, and that's not accounting for meat production or anything else. You were born in the wrong time, Andy. And place. Now, being a well-connected man, his networking across Europe had earned him a position, very well earned, as a U.S. consul because a family friend, Thomas Jefferson, happened to be president. A totally normal thing to be friends with the president. Do you guys, are you not in the group chat or? Yeah, not usually. I think I got blocked. So, <laughs> uh, so Jarvis. Can help. you just ask him to like, pardon me? Just preemptively. preemptively. Just, just, just don't put a date on it. Okay. Yeah. Just <laughs> blank pardon. BRB. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to uh, photocopy the hell out of that. So, so Jarvis held this position from 1802 to 1811, and it couldn't have been better for him as the, the perfect storm basically arrived. So did he have a beard like that goat in the perfect storm? Say hello to your mother for me. What's happening? Uh, Andy's doing a bad impression of a Boston accent, even though he grew up here. Hey. No, I can't do a recording. It <laughs> oh, feels weird. Yeah, Are you going to say I'm no. walking here? <laughs> hey, I'm walking here. Yeah, that's the that's wrong Boston. city. Yeah, it's that's the wrong not... city. <laughs> No, it feels weird to do an accent like when you're talking in a microphone. So, anyways, this is <laughs> no matter irrelevant. what, you just sound like Ben Affleck. <laughs> he's sort of from Boston, and he's terrible at it too. Yeah, that's true. I I took a class with Matt Damon's mom once. That's Did I ever fun. tell you that? Yeah, no, doing what? It was a writing class, actually. Oh, and this is getting way off topic. Anyways, well, so the no, the, let's dive uh, in. No, no, we got to talk about right. the storm, the perfect storm kid. Uh, so anyways, the first thing you should be asking is what's the big deal about these Merino sheep? The Merino breed was developed in Spain where the sheep was basically like guarded like Jesus, if Jesus was cared about when he was alive, because they had this really fine, highly prized wool. Now, unlike most wool, it wasn't scratchy while still having the good benefits of wool, being super thick and productive. By the 14th century, the export of this luxurious fine wool was a booming business for the entire Spanish economy. Okay, so they protected it for like 400 years by controlling the breeding and killing anybody that got their hands on a sheep and wasn't supposed to have one? Basically. It's the Krabby Patty formula. It's, it's the... Yeah, I wish I could come up with something that rhymed with Krabby, but I can't. Yes, it's the Krabby Patty formula, but for sheep. Sheep edition. Now, people in the New World, in the colonies, they were familiar with sheep. Like, people were raising them. They brought them from the UK or England, and um, people had various breeds, and in some cases, even for generations within the colonies. I can't believe you didn't make a Black Phillip joke there. I was waiting for it. Yeah, so, like, Black Phillip. Like, you know, people have heard of Black Phillip, theoretically. I don't know if anybody's seen that fucking movie. It's it's basically a documentary. It's, Anyways, no, it's not. 
It, it is. It's fact. No one question it. So the dominant breeds here in the United States at the time were mainly English. Surprise. Now, that doesn't seem too bad at first glance. They're used to cooler climates, you know, wet climates. However, at that time, these sheep were known to be what's called leggy and late maturing, and they often had that itchy wool, and they also had a low wool yields. When you mean leggy, you mean like good ground clearance, or you mean leggy like Jessica Rabbit, like drawn pinup girl? Yeah, I mean, I I guess it literally means their legs are really long, which aren't necessarily ideal. They were basically letting them breed however they could instead of selectively breeding them as they were still doing in England at the time. However, they were pretty hardy and easily adapted to those conditions, uh, which was of, you know, significant importance given, you know, that was their food supply. And uh, it's something that will be important later on. Yeah, sounds like a good thing to keep a handle on both your food supply and your clothing supply. Yeah, making sure your food is like able to live versus like other things. Yeah. So now in the New World, the bulk of the textile needs were supplied by trade with England and France. From the start of the colonies, England basically discouraged any textile production in the Americas. They wanted to keep that economic power in England to keep the colonies from ever striking out on their own. Yeah, and that worked great. Hell yeah, it did. The end. (laughs) So even after the Revolutionary War, America didn't have the industrial infrastructure for manufacturing cloth in the qualities uh, in the quantities that they needed. Despite this, because of the nation's agricultural background, coarse wool and cloth were always in demand. The little fine wool needed was imported, and the industry was never really encouraged to grow in that direction as like an economic need. However, things did begin to change when wealthy farmers such as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson saw the potential for sheep, i.e. merino, to become a profitable investment. You mean those guys who were too stupid to figure out how hemp works and smoke it? Those guys? Yeah. Idiots. Those brilliant minds. Now, it wasn't just because suddenly sheep were valuable because they were undervalued or some like visionary type shit. This was driven largely by escalations between their two predominant international trade partners, England and France, which provided a majority of that wool. So there's nothing better than how much the French just absolutely hate the British, and it's kind of beautiful sometimes. It really is. Never thought I'd agree with the Frenchman. I mean, they were literally like, hey, you guys, you're fighting England? We're in. They didn't really need to know anything else. They just give them the excuse to fight the British and they would just jump in. How many years did they do that and still? They're still kind of doing it in different ways. It's it's really amazing. Yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. Guys, I'm literally right here. Yeah. Fuck those guys, Matt. Yeah. So so this ultimately... (laughs) So this ultimately escalated into the Embargo Act of 1807, which blocked French and English processed wool from coming to American shores. And if there's anything we know about embargoes, it's that it fixes all your problems. Just ask North Korea. Or Russia. Or Cuba. Yeah, this might be a good time to go to the bathroom if you're listening and come back. We're going to be here for a little bit. Yeah, you made your point. So, needless to say, things escalated. The next year, while Jarvis was still in Portugal, Napoleon invaded Spain. So now, not only was there no manufacturing sector to process wool to be sent to the United States, but there was also a supply chain issue and border issues going on in Spain as one of their major processors, France, was currently attacking them. They consider embargoing France? Problem solved. So, what does a rich kid do? 
He networks and sets a plan in motion. 15,767 Merino sheep arrived in numerous ports on the East Coast from Spain from 1810 to 1811. In 1811, he steps down from his post and buys a farm in Wethersfield, Vermont. During this time, he helps farmers who want to raise Merino sheep by selling them and travels to speak about the great opportunities that are available. Make America graze again. Basically, so your first thought might be like, awesome, he brought sheep and he's selling them instead of keeping them all for himself. That isn't all terrible, right? We'll get there. But before we get there, we've got to take a break so you can hear about all of our cool friends or something. If only I had the capacity to find out what commercial was going to be following this. Yeah, about that. You- hey folks, thanks for listening. This is Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast so far. And right now I'm talking to you from a commercial in a Poor Proles Almanac podcast. I'm sure you're enjoying the show and maybe even enjoying some of our ridiculous ads. We are able to keep our episodes ad-free and keep the lights on here because of support from listeners like you. If you think we're adding valuable perspective to the subjects of agriculture, ecology, climate change, and politics, then please consider giving us some support on Venmo, Ko-Fi, Patreon, or PayPal, all of which can be found at our website, poorproles.com. Please, don't make me go to Jeff for money. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Jeffrey, 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 Jeff, 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 Jeffrey, Jeffrey. Well, that was fun. Wasn't it? The commercials are definitely the best part of the podcast, like, honestly. But back to our good friend Jarvie. Yeah, Jarvie, that's not even short for Jarvis. It's got the same amount of syllables. It's what his friends call him. Seriously? No, but whatever. I'm calling him that. He can't do anything about it. What's he going to do? So true. So to his luck, the perfect storm (coughs) took place in the next few years. The first being that things continued to escalate between England and the War of 1812 broke out, meaning more need for wool for socks for soldiers and so on. And also whatever few things were getting into the country were basically 100% cut off or embargoed. And then two years later in 1814, the power loom was invented, which were powered by dams. Now, I know these guys know this, but our audience might not. New England is covered in rivers. New England. I don't even know how many states make it up. So what does the Jarvmeister do? Is it six or five? It's seven. So you, you don't even know either. Fuck it's you. six. No, it's six. It's six. Seven. With you. Is it five? I'm messing I with you. I thought it was five. No, it's six. It used to be five when, Mass- when Maine was part of Massachusetts. Also when Vermont was an independent republic. Also that. So while he does decide to raise these merino sheep himself, or at least like he owns the farm, he probably wasn't doing much of the actual work, he invests heavily in the textile mills. So what he's done is he's created his own market, and then things go crazy. At this point, the water power of the hills in central New England have quickly exploded to becoming one of the largest producers of merino wool in the entire world. Listen, I know I'm not like... A historian here, but that seems like a lot of growth really quickly. Some might say maybe unsustainable growth. Some might. Now, for context, only about 20% of the land below 2,000 feet above sea level was agricultural land when the first merino sheep were brought to New England. Within 35 years, that switches to 80%. We talked about those 16-ish thousand sheep that he had sent over. 
1840, that number had bumped up to 4 million. That seems like too many sheep. Yeah, Marine, no more. I hit you. Good. So I've got this clip from Tom Wessel. Uh, you may remember him from our interview a couple of years ago. And he talks a little bit about it right here. The landscape becomes almost 80% deforested below 2,000 feet in this region. The bulk of it in pasturage for sheep. So over half the area of central New England was clear cut to make way for sheep pasture. Now, many people think that these stone fences were built as soon as farms were opened up. And that's not the case. Farmers much preferred wooden fencing. They could put up 10 times as much split rail zigzag wooden fencing a day as they could stone fencing. It's only with the massive deforestation associated with sheep fever, there's no longer enough wood to make wood fencing anymore. And so farmers, as those wood fences start to rot away, have to go back to stone dumps and bring back the stone to make these stone fences. In central New England, it's estimated we have over 125,000 miles of woodland stone fencing. That means if we lined it all up, it wrapped the equator five times, it stretched more than halfway to the moon. I've calculated if we piled all this stone, it'd be six times as massive as all the pyramids in Egypt. And they did all that shit without icy hot. But they had whiskey, so, yeah. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, the rest of the world caught on. And as Spain was engulfed in this war, they began to liquidate assets and sold off their prized merinos. And by 1844, between the influx in new wool and the war's ending, the price drops from that $2 a pound around 1809 to around 27 cents a pound in 1840. Most merino farmers went under, leaving a landscape that had been basically clear-cut for the sheep and overgrazed in its wake. Yeah, and a region whose forest has still yet to fully recover. So, for example, in Maine, which is by far the least populated state in New England, only one half of a tenth of a percentage of the 18 million acres of forest has never been cleared since the colonists showed up. Most of New England has faced even worse. Today, Maine is the most forested state in the country, with 90% tree cover. The conditions of these woods is another matter, though, a question of quantity versus quality. Unlike old growth, hard-worked forests send up homogeneous stands of trees, both in terms of age and species. They're less diverse and less resilient ecosystems, which I think we've like talked about in like a couple different ways on the podcast before this. So they often favor light-loving trees that would otherwise only play a minor role in the forest. Exactly. So these forests that were cut down in the drive for quick profits continue to echo throughout the landscape today. Driving through New England, the hillsides are littered with white pines, which would have traditionally existed in mostly disturbed areas, not as a main feature in the landscape. Yeah, and so that raises some important questions around what our landscape should look like and what responsibilities we have to manage it, given the destruction that we've had on it so far. Yeah, and honestly, this just seems like rich people have been making, causing the same problems since the beginning of New England. I don't know. I would say they, they should fix it, but they're not going to. That's why we're here. Yeah, and we have a knack for fucking shit up. And our boy Jar Jar Binks didn't help things. Jarfish. The old Jarry Jar. We're really gonna fucking end the episode like this? You got- you Bio Jar. Alright, well that's funny. Yeah, that's a good one. Wouldn't that make Jarvis bi Bio Jar? Is that good or bad? I don't even know anymore. Nothing bad can come from Bio Jar. Well, it's sometimes good for the soil, but when it's not good for the soil, it's bad for the soil. Yes and no. Yes and no. 
we are the Poor Pearl's Almanac. Thanks for hanging out with us. Boom. Thanks for dealing with whatever this was. These episodes are not getting better.